All right, today in our series on David, we come to arguably one of the most famous, well-known passages in, in the entire Bible. We come to the story of David and Bathsheba, one of, uh, one of the, uh, just a, an amazing passage because it has so much to say about the human heart. And that's how we're going to approach it today. As a matter of fact, this passage is so important. What I want to do is take not one but two weeks to line this out. So today, what we're going to do is look at the darkness of the human heart. And then we're going to look at the brightness or the sensitivity of God's grace. And then next week, I want to come back and I want to look at the humility of repentance, David's repentance, and then the restorative power of forgiveness, of divine forgiveness. Uh, So today, we're looking at the human heart, and today we're going to look at God's grace. Uh, But before I do, I want to say three things. Uh, Many of you parents have children in here today, and you're thinking, now, should my child sit through this? And we want to honor you, and you are free to do whatever you want. But I want you to know this passage does not go into any sort of detail that's uncomfortable, and I'm not either. Uh, I'm just not going to go there. Now, the second thing I want to say is to those of you that are in the marketplace, business, medicine, education, maybe it's politics or or whatever. And I also want to say to those of you that are single, uh, there's a lot here, and, and, and we will be ahead of the game if we understand that the story of David and Bathsheba isn't just about a marriage problem. It's about a power problem. It's about the abuse of power in the marketplace, the abuse of authority in the marketplace. God cares deeply about your role um, in the marketplace. You spend so much of your life there. And he's given us this passage uh, uh, to show us some things, and we don't want to miss it. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Now, the third thing I want to say is is personal. Here I am getting ready this week to preach David and Bathsheba, and i got to tell you, it's been a weird week for me. A weird week, and let me, let me tell you about that. Uh, I go out on Monday, and I'm shoveling, all right? Shoveling the driveway, and I take my gloves off. I mean, real men don't shovel with gloves on. And I don't know why I took my gloves off. Maybe it was to answer my phone or something, but I had my gloves off, and I shovel for I come back in, and my wedding ring is gone. And I, my wedding ring is gone, and I'm getting ready to preach on David and Bathsheba. <laughs> so don't come up to me and say, Rob, do you have an issue, okay? I lost my wedding ring. And furthermore, if you drive my, by, by my house in the spring and I'm crawling around in the driveway or, you know, in the grass, uh, don't take a picture and post it, okay? Uh, you know, just wave and pray for me. i got to find my wedding ring. Uh, okay, so that's all going on. I'm preaching David and Bathsheba, and just a couple days ahead of time, I lose this thing. Next day, I go to the um, store because I'm looking for uh, a perfect Valentine's Day card for Rhonda. And I want to get ahead, man. You got six days. Um, and, and so I, I'm looking and looking at cards, and I, and I pick one, and I, I go home, and I think, well, I, I better look at it. And so I get home, and I, I look at this Valentine's Day card. And up at the top, in bold letters, the card I purchased for Rhonda says, for my husband. (laughs) It wasn't there when I bought it. 
It, it just couldn't have been. And, you know, I, I'm preaching on David and Bathsheba. And all, all this is, is going on. Um, so let me, let me land this. I, I, I've said this before. But there is a whole lot of pride in the pulpit of larger churches around the country. I see it in my life. I see it in the life of others. A whole lot of arrogance. A whole lot of pride. We live in a celebrity culture. And, and, and this week, one of the things God is saying to me is, Rob, you have nothing to be proud about. You can't even get through your week. Uh, I, I, you're, you're a disaster. So let's go on. Grab your Bibles. I want you to turn on your Bibles. I want you to turn in your Bibles to this incredible Old Testament story found in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel comes right after 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, that's where we're going to start at least. Now, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. I want you to bring your Bibles to church. We study the Bibles because we believe the Bible is God's Word. So I want you to breathe either electronically or in print. Man, bring your Bible. But if you don't have a Bible, no worries. We provide Bibles in the racks in front of you. And grab one of those Bibles, and this passage is about page 300. And so we're going to start, we're not going to read all the chapter, we're going to read uh, part of it. Let's start in verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? Which would have been one of David's council members. And the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had, she had past tense, purified herself from her unclean, uncleanness. Now, um, that little parenthesis is important because what it's doing is making a comment that following her menstrual period, um, she had gone through the ritual cleaning prescribed in the Old Testament. In other words, um, before she slept with David, she wasn't pregnant. That's what the author wants you to know. Now let me continue. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent the word to, this word to Joab. Send me Uriah uh, the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were doing, how the war was going down. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now David is manipulating Uriah, wash your feet is a, a euphemism or a Hebrew um, idiom for just chill. Uh, just go home and relax. We would say put your feet up. Have a romantic evening uh, with your wife. That's what's going on. Uh, so Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him, probably wine and food. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark 
and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah here is more righteous than the godly King David. Now skip down to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it with Uriah. In it, he said, put Uriah in the front of the line where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw for him so he will be struck down and die. And while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. Might have been at the city gates. Uh, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Now go to the last two verses of the chapter. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And the time of mourning, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now notice this last line. Let me start at the end and then we'll back up. What just happened, what David just did, was extraordinarily evil, adultery and murder. Uh, innocent, an innocent man, innocent men died. And when this kind of stuff happens around us, we look at it and say, God, how could you allow that injustice? God, why didn't you stop this? Why didn't God stop this? And sometimes we, uh, our minds get all tied in, in knots and we, uh, we get frumpy with God about this. And how do we respond? Well, look at the last sentence. The thing David did displeased the Lord. So those of you that struggle with evil and the injustice of God, never mistake the silence of God for the absence of God. Parents, teach your kids this. God may be silent, but he is not sightless. Uh, David's whole life changes here. David will face God. There's all sorts of consequences. Each and every one of us will face God. All through this chapter, there's nothing about God. There's adultery. There's murder. God, where are you in this? And we come to the last sentence. The silence of God never means the absence of God. Now let's go all the way back to the beginning. Go to verse 1. Uh, oh, oh, what I want to do before I nut some of this out and then we go to grace is uh, I, I want you to see uh, three aspects of David's sin. The first is compromise. And in verse 1, we kind of get a hint of this because we're told it's springtime, all the other kings are going to war, uh, but David's staying in Jerusalem, man. And then in verse 2, David just gets up from a nap. And, and so we read this and we think, well, what's going on? Has David gotten lazy? Is David in, in, in disobedience? Is David going soft? David's about 50 here, you know, give or take a, a a little, and, and the truth is we don't know. We just know that verse 1 is, is suggesting uh, that things are different now, that something appears to be amiss. Well, let me tell you what's amiss in David's life. 
What's amiss is despite the clear teaching of the Old Testament that marriage is to be monogamous, one man, one woman, and despite the clear warning in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that when Israel has kings, that kings should not multiply horses, they should not multiply silver, and they should not multiply wives. In spite of the teaching of the Old Testament, David here has eight wives and more concubines. Look at this verse from 2 Samuel chapter 5. This is like six chapters earlier. Uh, David has just kind of turned his back on the clear teaching of God's word. Now, Now think about this. David was faithful, obedient when it came to horses, according to Deuteronomy 17. He was faithful, obedient when it came to silver. But David was a man of passion, so he compromised on on wives. And instead of being the good king, the godly king, instead of being different, he became just like every other pagan king around him. Now, it doesn't matter the area. It could be eating. It could be drinking. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be spending. What is self-centered, or self-control rather? Self-control is the ability to do what is right despite what you desire. I encourage you to memorize that. Now David could do that with horses and silver, but he could not do it with women. So what was amiss wasn't just that David stayed in Jerusalem... Because long before David ever saw Bathsheba, he was in trouble because he had one area in his life that he continued to compromise. I mean, every other king around me has multiple wives, concubines. Why shouldn't I, David would say. Now, do you remember why the Titanic sank? The Titanic sank because of the crew. Because the crew was getting radio from other ships that were ahead of the Titanic, around the Titanic. Hey, if you you go into this, if you're going ahead, man, there's these monster icebergs. Don't go. The crew ignored the warnings. David ignored the warnings of God's word. Definition of marriage. The warning in Deuteronomy 17. Uh, When his aide here says, don't you know who this is? Uh, Well, this is uh, uh, Bathsheba, the daughter and the, uh, the wife. David, these are your trusted men. David ignores the warnings. He ignores God's word. David did not wake up one day and said, you know, I think I'm going to commit adultery today. Years earlier, he started playing loose with God's word. And and then let me just say on the front end of this, if, if you struggle with sexual purity, uh, we, uh, we want to help you here as a church. And on the first page inside your worship folder, we talk about our, our Compass Ministry where we have a lot of men, we've been doing this for a number of years, that want to support you and help you get to the other side. And there's information there. I'd love for you to get involved. And while this issue is not, sexual purity is not unique to men, uh, I do want to say for you wives, we also have a support group. If, if your husband or others in your life are struggling with it, it's all in, in, in your worship folder. Please take steps. Please. So this, this first issue aspect is compromise. The second is capitulation. That's the second paragraph. 
in this chapter, chapter 11. It's David crossing the line. It's, it's David sinning. Now, it could have been stealing. It could have been lying. It could have been doing drugs. It could have been exploding in anger. It, it, it could have been drinking too much. It could have been porn. But for David, it's taking another man's wife. Biblically, sin isn't just breaking God's word. It's breaking yourself against God's word. And that's what's happening here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Temptation. Listen to what he says. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled, the flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition, or vanity, or the desire for rent, revenge, or the love of fame, or power, or greed. At this moment, God becomes qu quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire is real to us. Satan does not fill us with a hatred of God, but instead a forgetfulness of God. And the powers of clear thinking, uh, clear decision-making uh, are, are taken from us. It's all our desires. It is here that everything in me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation, Bonhoeffer goes on to say, to flee, to flee, to flee. There is no resistance to Satan and lust other than to flee. Every struggle against every evil desire in one's own strength is doomed to failure. I say this because David didn't flee. He refused to flee. He crossed the line. And there's two things, by the way, that relative to temptation, I want you to understand. I'll, I'll put these up here. And the first is um, temptation is universal. We live in a sinful, fallen world. Temptation is all around us. We will be repeatedly tempted, each and every one of us, no exceptions. Number two, because we are sinful, fallen people living in a sinful, fallen world, we are going to be powerless against temptation. Now, David could resist Horses and silver, he couldn't resist this area. We all have our areas. You have yours, man. I, 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 I've got mine. Third, relative to temptation, if you know Jesus Christ, if God has saved you, if you have come to Christ, if you have been born again, God will never abandon you. God is always present in his son. He's given you the Holy Spirit. You may feel alone. You may feel un overwhelmed. You may feel totally incompetent, but you are never alone. You have the spirit resident within you, and it's the spirit that will give you the strength to flee, to resist, to say no. But David capitulates. Let me go on. The third, and, and really the bulk of this chapter is about David's cover-up. So we go from compromise to capitulation to cover-up. And David's got a Bathsheba gate, okay? And so what does he do? Well, he manipulates Uriah. Uriah, go home. Be with your wife. Uriah is too righteous, won't do that. He gets him drunk. And then he murders the man. 
David's portrayal of Uriah because Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. A soldier who gave his life to continually protecting David. David's betrayal of Uriah ranks second in the Bible to Judas' betrayal of Jesus. It's awful. And Satan, when he tempts us, man, he doesn't tip his hand. He shows you and me only the pleasure, only the fun, only the good peace. And he hides the darkness. He, he hides the consequences. So uh, Satan never tells the drug addict that that road is going to destroy you. He just talks about the fun. He, he doesn't say to the guy who's uh, playing loose on, on the internet that this is ultimately never going to satisfy you. It's going to shrivel you. And it's going to make you something you never want to be. Man, Satan just smiles. And then when you fall, he's nowhere to be found. And you are in deep weeds. And what are you left with? All you are left with is cover-up. This chapter is all about David's cover-up. And what do you do? Well, you start to lie. You spin a web of deceit. And you build walls. And the walls are, are called deceit. Now, that's the story here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, why is this in the Bible? Uh, what, is, what is God uh, teaching us? I mean, think about this. David was the godliest of the godly. Author of psalm after psalm. This was a man after God's own heart. This was a man that loved God's word. In addition, Uriah wasn't a stranger. Uriah wasn't an ordinary man. Uriah was exceptional. He was a strong soldier. A huge asset to David. So why is this here? What's the point? Number one. For those of you that spend your lives in the marketplace, maybe it's in an executive office, maybe your office is in your car or at home, uh, maybe it's the hospital or, or a school or, or government building. The point is, if David can abuse power, so can you. The good king, the good leader, is one whose people prosper. David here destroys. And the higher you go vocationally, the danger, the greater the danger of getting spiritually lazy. I, I'm just too busy. Of uh, 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 compromise. And, and you begin to tell yourself, man, I, I deserve this. Look what I've done. Look how hard I work. Uh, look at what, what I, I've built. And so you cook the books. You pad the account. Uh, you lie to people around you. And what are you doing? Everything becomes about you, and you're abusing power. And if David can abuse power, so can you. So can I. And people, good people like Uriah, just become a means to our narcissistic end. 
Now, yes, David had a lust problem, but I want you to understand, underneath it, he had a power. He had an authority problem. He had a marketplace problem. This is a marketplace. And God gives us this because it's where we live, and God wants us to glorify Christ in the marketplace. And David, power made him arrogant. It, it, it made him totally insensitive to the people God had sovereignly placed around him, and he destroys them. And if David can abuse power, so can you. But there's a second, a deeper point here. And that is the human heart. I mean, my heart, your heart, is capable of the worst possible evil. Even among the godly. During World War II, when um, President Roosevelt, the President of the United States, uh, and some of his... uh, uh, top leaders first heard about what was going on in Germany with their concentration camps. Do you know how they responded? They didn't believe it. Uh, the German culture is too sophisticated. Uh, Beethoven, economic uh, uh, powerhouse. Uh, Germans could never do this. The point of Second Samuel chapter 11 is, oh yes they can. Any of us are capable of extraordinary evil. Uh, uh, Never mind that the Germans were educated and sophisticated. Evil, evil is not a function of a lack of education. It's not a function of circumstances. It's not a function of having an alcoholic father. It's not a function of stress. It's not a, a, a... a function of a, a, a boss who is difficult, a marriage that's complicated. All those explanations are way too shallow. Evil is a function of our sinful hearts. And if David can do this, so can I. So can you. The reason this is in the Bible is to show us the darkness of the human condition. Do not, do not, don't miss this. And and if you read this and think, well, I I could never do this, I want to say, man, be careful, because you've just taken a big step in that direction. Because all it takes is a little seed, a little seed and a little water, and you've got a yard full of dandelions. All it takes is a little bitty acorn and some water, and you've got a forest. All it takes is a little compromise, a little narcissism, and the best of us can destroy in a blink of an eye. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the biblical explanation of why the world is not getting any better despite our technology, uh, despite our sophistication. Uh, uh, This chapter is an explanation of why hate, war, terrorism, human trafficking, uh, porn, rampant. Human heart, human heart is capable of extraordinary evil. Now, uh, this week I, I read a, an account, someone comes along and, and says, man, um, you're good guys in the Bible? Like David, Abraham, Moses, Peter, Paul? You look under the hood, they're bad guys. What's up with your book? Uh, what's your book all, all, all about? And let's say somebody poses that to you. I want to tell you how to respond. 
And the way you respond is by saying, well, you know, I'm not sure you understand the main message of the Bible because the main message of the Bible is, is not about living a certain type of life so God can bless us and we can go to heaven. The main message of the Bible is that God is a God of grace and mercy and he pours out grace and mercy on people that don't deserve it, can't earn it, and don't even appreciate it when they receive it. And the best people who have ever lived can never overcome their sinful bent. Apart from God's grace in Jesus Christ. Our hearts are capable of way more than we want to believe. And the reason some of you are struggling with this today is because your self-identity, all of us, this is how it all works for all of us, your self-identity is based on comparison. And you look around, you say, I work harder than this person, or I do this, you know, I'm green, I, I, I recycle. <laughs> I, I care for animals. You know, I, 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 I've, I've got this family, whatever. And, and your self-identity is based on comparison. And you can always find people that you compare favorably to. All right, I, I'm going to leave that because I want to go on to the bright side, the grace side. Now, let's pick it up here. This is crazy. And I would, I just wonder that perhaps many of you, many of you have never seen this before. So let's go on to chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought, bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. You animal lovers are just digging this. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe, the lamb that belonged to the poor man, and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, fourfold, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And I'll go on next week with the rest of this passage. Now you need to understand the ancient Near East is different than liberal democracies today. Uh, because in the ancient Near East, the king was the, the president, the congress, and the supreme court all rolled into one. And his word was always final. Knowing that, what does Nathan do? Nathan brings a case to him for him to... Uh, uh, make a decision on. Actually, it's a parable, and David doesn't know it at the time, but in the parable, David is the wealthy man, Uriah is the poor man, and Bathsheba is the female lamb. And, and Nathan tells this parable, and then after the parable, I want you to notice David's response. Uh, David demands that the man uh, restore uh, the poor man fourfold. That He's citing an explicit Old Testament passage in the book of Exodus. David knows God's word. Now tragically, prophetically, in the aftermath, the consequences of David's sin, four of David's sons will die. Four times over, fourfold. 
So when David says this guy ought to be repaired, uh, restored fourfold, that's perfectly appropriate. But prior to that, the text tells us David burned with anger. And he says the man should die. There is no biblical basis whatsoever for that in the Old Testament. In other words, David's response is way over the top. Why? Because David's emotion is being driven by the personal guilt he is stuffing. Now, uh, those of you that love psychology, uh, pay attention to this. Whatever you are overflowing with will spill out when you're bumped. David is bumped. And Nathan knows David is going to be bumped. And Nathan wants to trap David. And so Nathan is very intentional here. But David's enormous anger over lamb stealing is a subconscious eruption due to his own guilt. He's furious because of his own problem that he's been denying, he's been stuffing. So Nathan tells the story, then he lowers the boom in verse 7. You're the man. King, David, I love you, I'll serve you all my life, but you're the man. Do you see how sensitive, how smart grace is here? Uh, some people call this the savviness of grace. Uh, other people, the, the shrewdness of grace. What do they mean? <laughs> well, they mean that Nathan didn't begin with the statement, you're the man. He ended with it. He told a story first. Now, Nathan doesn't do that because he's afraid of David. He'll expose David. No, Nathan does this because he's reflecting the sensitivity of God's grace. Grace is giving someone what they don't deserve. You see, God in his grace is all about conviction and all about conversion. He's not about condemnation. It's very easy to condemn sin, to judge sin in such a way that all it does is raise walls, right? We've experienced that. Now, David is an adulterer. David is a murderer. Innocent men have died. And Nathan could have begun uh, by saying, David, you're a sinner. But he told a story. Now, yes, don't misunderstand, it glorifies God when you speak the truth. But as uh, others have pointed out here, it glorifies God more when you speak the truth in such a way that is consistent with God's character. You are the man. Isn't Nathan's intro, it's his conclusion. Because repentance, not condemnation, is his goal. Man, I, I want you to see this. This is just crazy. Crazy, beautiful. Everyone who sins, I'm getting into the psychology, the spiritual aspect of this. Everyone who sins and lives in sin and continues to sin spins a web of deceit. And they build walls. And they, they deny. And what is denial? Denial is the unwillingness to face the truth because the truth is too painful. Now, we all do this. 
and, and we all justify it. Man, I, I, I've just been going so hard, or man, it's just so difficult here. And so what does Nathan do? Nathan is disarming David. Nathan is getting David to speak. Nathan is getting David to open his eyes and own it. So there's a way of telling the truth that dishonors the truth. That sends people running, that builds walls. Jesus Christ came along and we are told twice in John chapter 1. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. So grace is bold. Grace is always laced with truth. But grace is also smart and sensitive and savvy and shrewd. Nathan begins with a story. Let me conclude. You know what your friends need? Your friends need you to be a Nathan. And you know what you need? You need a Nathan in your life. Nathan's in your life. Our hearts are way more sinful than we realize. But God's grace is way more sensitive, convicting, and converting than we can possibly imagine. Jesus Christ came not to bash you, but to bless you to bring you into the light. And if you have never, ever done so, man, turn to Jesus. Come to Jesus now. He died on the cross in your place for your sins. And if there's something in your life you need to to get out, man, our prayer team will be down here in front and and they would love to pray with you. Or or maybe it's a a David you know and you want to pray. Or maybe you want to be a Nathan or need Nathans. Come down. And pray. God is moving in a passage like this, and God is speaking. Don't let this moment pass. And if you're coming to Christ, go grab a next steps packet in our visitor center. Let's pray and let's worship. God, we need you because we are not equal. We're not equal to, to life. Um, I I see this in my life all the time. And so, God, I would just ask for my brothers and sisters that you would reveal yourself, you would speak to us, that you would show us the beauty and the wonder, the sensitivity of your grace in Jesus Christ. Bless us now. Amen.